Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be giving you a preview of the primary election in Nevada. Elizabeth Thompson is here to help out the managing editor, as well as two of our finest reporters, Riley Snyder and Michelle Rindels. As always, at the end, Elizabeth and I will talk about some important issues of the day and perhaps even disagree. It does happen. A reminder, if you like us, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies. Tell people you see on the street. We appreciate it. So let's get started with a recap of some of this week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. Our big story this week was an exclusive by our intern, Sonny Brown, who broke news of serious questions being raised about whether an investigation Attorney General Adam Laxalt says is taking place is actually taking place. Laxalt, who's running for governor, has repeatedly dodged questions about a rural sheriff he touts as one of his supporters who also has been accused of sexual misconduct. Laxalt says he can't talk about it because of his investigation, even though he happily accepted his endorsement. But Sonny's story has plenty of evidence suggesting there is no probe at all. The AG has not contacted the woman who accused the sheriff of one of the most egregious harassment charges and whose career is now in tatters. Laxalt's own chief investigator supposedly told at least one person that the AG's office couldn't investigate, and a lawyer says he sees no indication there's any investigation at all. What saith Laxalt? Nada. I wonder why. Our newest member of the Indy family, Alexander Zapata, did a great piece for both our Spanish and English pages on hockey fever in the Hispanic community. The Knights are creating hockey fans in every demographic, and Alexander's piece captured that very well. We also got a hold this week of an audio recording of a Republican event in Gardnerville. During that event, Senator Dean Heller, who once distanced himself from the president, is now so all in with Trump that he says he won't vote for anything the president won't sign on helping dreamers. He also attacked the media in D.C. as too, wait for it, aggressive. But Heller said the Nevada media is, quote, reasonable, which would surprise many in Nevada media whom he runs away from. Also in the recording, State Senate GOP leader Michael Roberson said he hopes rural lawmaker James Settlemeyer would succeed him, which may have come as a surprise to Roberson's number two, Ben Keefer of Reno. Thanks, Mike. Megan Messerly had a great preview of the GOP primary race to succeed Congresswoman Jackie Rosen. Megan captured the vitriol between Danny Tarkanian and Michelle Mortensen. They even argue over angry tweets and which ones were liked or deleted. I kid you not. Finally, Late this week, we posted a piece by Jackie Valley about an advisory brothel ban question getting on the ballot in Lyon County. County commissioners unanimously, yes, unanimously voted to do so. And this may seem minor, especially to those of you who have no idea where Lyon County is, but for elected officials in a rural county to vote to do this is unprecedented. And if it passes, while it's only advisory, it could be the first domino to fall and presage the end of legal prostitution in Nevada. Just think about that. We'll be back in a moment on Indy Matters with our primary election preview. We're back on Indy Matters with our primary election preview. Elizabeth Thompson, my managing editor, is here along with Riley Snyder and Michelle Rindels. Hello, everybody. Hello, John. Hi, John. 
Hi, John. Two out of three podcasts smooth. Sorry, Riley. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do this preview. Uh, I want to tell everybody, as they're, they're listening to this, they should probably be on our great elections uh, 2018 page, uh, which our, our great CTO, uh, CJ Keeney, designed and is probably one of the best and, uh, and easiest to use and chock full of information and maps pages like this in the country. So Let's start with with what I consider the biggest race of the primary season, and that and that is the most important race in the state on the governor in the governor's race on the Democratic side. Steve Sisolak and Chris June Kiliani uh, are are tearing each other apart now on TV. They've done a few debates in the last few weeks that I think have illuminated uh, some issues. Uh, who wants to jump in on this first, Elizabeth? You better since the reporters look shy today. Uh, well, we know they're not, but I, I'll, I'm happy to go first. So one of the things I love uh, about Nevada politics, and I guess this is true everywhere, right? But I think it's even more true here is that it's so difficult to poll a primary. It's so difficult to figure out where everyone really stands. And so it really kind of builds up the suspense, uh, and, but it keeps the candidates active and campaigning hard right up until the last minute uh, and using every dollar in every way they can uh, and still trying to pull in money at the last minute either from uh, activist groups or groups even outside uh, the state. And we're seeing that with with Sisolak and and Chris G. It's just been back and forth, uh, TV ads, digital ads, comments in the press, uh, every chance these two have had to go after each other, they've taken it. It's been really even more interesting, as Riley, I think, has pointed out uh, before, uh, either on this podcast or are in our team conversations, um, because both of them sit on the Clark County Commission, which is one of the most interesting and complex and powerful bodies in the state. And so there's plenty for these two to go after each other uh, on. I find it kind of fascinating that in some cases they voted the same way, but they're going after each other on kind of the minutia of the different areas that in which they disagreed. So it's been interesting. Interesting. Uh, we've definitely seen some divisions and divides uh, drawn. We've seen where they differ, uh, not just in policy, but in their approach to the way they talk uh, about policy. Uh, I think it's been fascinating to watch. We've also seen a lot of this proxy war between the Clark County Education Association, which recently split off from the statewide uh, union, teachers union, the NSEA. So I was just at the gym this morning, saw the the infamous uh, Chris G ad where she's sitting at a meeting and laughing, uh, and and it says not Nevada's next governor. So that she's laughing during some public meeting. So there's those ads, and then we we also heard that NSEA is bumping up their support of Chris uh, because they feel they can make a difference. They can kind of close this gap. They were heartened by a, a new poll by Emily's List that uh, found. You know, the race is closing up more than what we saw in mid-April, which was a big, I mean, 25-point split. So they were re-upping their set of commercials on her behalf for through the early voting. We'll see if it makes much of a difference. But then Sisolak's team this weekend sent a statement saying outside groups are having to prop Chris G up. Of course, Chris G, you know, is is far behind in the fundraising, and they, they sent out this statement kind of criticizing her for uh, presumably not raising her own money and, uh, you know, getting this boost from Emily's List and the NSEA. Yeah, the use of outside groups has been really interesting in this primary because unlike in 2016, there's been almost no spending for the congressional races or 
really for the Senate races outside of, I think, like the American Chemistry Council placed a small TV ad by um, Culinary Union has done some TV and some mailers for Stephen Horsford in the 4th Congressional District in that Democratic primary. But really, all the money has gone into the the governor's primary, which I think is going to pretend really big um, come November when whoever survives this will go up against probably Adam Laxalt, maybe Fred Conquist, but probably Adam Laxalt. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, Fred. we've seen uh, groups like this one, United for a Better Tomorrow, that isn't registered with the state, the FEC, or the IRS is running, you know, close to a six-figure television ad attacking Chris. You know, we've seen uh, Emily's List set up this pack in Nevada called Women Vote. They're running mailers and TV ads. I mean, it's coming in from all sides. It's hard to keep track of, of all of this outside money. And it's what June Giuliani, who I think has raised, like, cumulatively probably – less than a million dollars, if I remember right, in this race, like stay competitive with Sisolak, who spent basically, you know, 2011 onwards fundraising for this very specific race. They both have an incredibly big burn rate. So they're spending a lot more money than they're taking in. And they're both, whoever wins is basically going to be broke come the primary day. And they're going to need outside money to help boost them over uh, Adam Laxalt. I mean, there are campaign contribution limits of $5,000 per election. And I'm sure they've already met that with a ton of their regular donors. So they're going to need a lot of help to make it past the primary. John Ralston, so we all love to talk about like the money and where the money comes from and what that translates into in terms of advertising and you know movement in the polls and so on and so forth. Does the average voter care where the money comes from for any given campaign? Well, the average voter probably doesn't, but certain voters do, which is why the Koch brothers have been used by Democrats in a lot of uh, federal races. It's why probably Sheldon Adelson's name will be thrown around a lot in the general election, why uh, 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 Tom Steyer and Nancy Pelosi will be used uh, by, by by Republicans as well. First of all, I, I should say, Elizabeth, and this is your department, so I want to say this on the podcast, based on what Riley is saying, and I'm sure he's right, there's going to be tons of outside money spent on ads. Maybe we should rethink whether we take ads on NDTV. <laughs> and, and speaking of NDTV, how did that come up? But we should let everybody know as well that they should check out NDTV uh, on election night. We'll be broadcasting live. We'll have the uh, numbers as soon as everybody else does, maybe earlier if uh, Riley can hack into the secretary. Uh, never mind. And, 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 but seriously, we're going to have a lot of numbers and analysis and reporting, and we're going to call races. Uh, NDTV, uh, just click on that link on our on our website, please uh, take a look at that. I just want to say a couple other quick things about this. Michelle, you brought up that Emily's List poll, which which Christian Kiliani is using, uh, saying she's closed the gap, which I think she has closed the gap. We, I just want to say just real quickly, we didn't use that poll. We didn't publish it because Emily's List didn't wouldn't release a lot of the details of that poll. But what's really important about what Emily's List has done is they've come in, as you mentioned, with NSCA to try to bridge this gap. And this, I don't think that voters care, that, and I don't know why Steve Sislak is saying that she's being propped up by outside groups. Most voters don't even know what he's talking about. They, they see these ads, and they all think they're coming from campaigns. They don't wait for the little disclaimer at, at, at the end. And what I think is really interesting about this uh, race is, 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 as Riley said, they're both going to be broke. But Christian Kiliani's managed, because of these outside groups, to remain relatively competitive in the media. She's done even more mail than Sislak because she's had to, but because of NSCA and Emily's List, uh, uh, the women's vote ads, they've been able to remain pretty competitive. And so I think that Sislak has decided, listen, I can't take a chance Right. I'm going to have to try to spend every dime 
I have to try to kill her. Uh, I think they th they still feel confident they're going to win, but with a low turnout primary, pro probably be 25 percent max among Democrats, they're still worried. I mean, I get a sense that they're worried. Where's he going to get the money from as Ry for the general, as Riley pointed out, because he is pulling out all the stops uh, to make sure he beats her. I don't know if he'll be entirely broke, but he'll probably be close to it by the time uh, we get to the general. There will be a little bit of a sabbatical this summer while everyone recovers from the primary and goes on vacation and gets ready to rev back up for the fall. But where is Steve Sisolak going to raise the money to match the kind of money that Laxalt not only has, but has access to uh, in the form of the very deep coffers and couch cushions of Sheldon and another thing is like, you know, Sislak has run probably like six or seven television ads so far. They're like they're airing during important times. Um, they haven't aired during the Stanley Cup, to my knowledge. And I don't know because I don't have cable. It's a big millennial <laughs> alert there. But, um, you know, he aired them during the the, the, the run up and, and in the conference championships of NHL Golden Knights games. That cost a lot of money to run those. He's not running these at 3 a.m. during like public access TV. He's spending a lot of money. And. The pool of voters who watch Golden Knight games are not only Democratic primary voters. So I'm sure his team hates to kind of waste money. I'm sure it's boosting his name ID and they can point to some sort of ancillary benefits. But he's really blowing through a lot of money to try and, and get past. Well, he does. There is some wisdom to it, I think. He needs the name recognition very much. Not that Laxalt doesn't because he's only the attorney general, which in Nevada doesn't necessarily get you that much in terms of name recognition. But so Sisolak's spend on the ads, in my opinion, isn't just about making sure that he defeats Chris G. It's also helping him out as he's looking ahead to the general. But if he didn't have a primary, he would have ran like one or two, like what we've seen Adam Laxalt do or other candidates, as opposed to the whole media barrage he's had. I think our poll, if I, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I think our poll showed that all, all three of those candidates, the major candidates, Sisolak, June Kiliani, and Laxalt, all are not that well known, even though Laxalt's been a statewide official. I think he's only known by about half the vote or something like that. And so, uh, but he is the luxury of having just, uh, you know, a, a treasure no one likes and no one knows <laughs> running against him and, and a guy who's riding a bike around the state and a Fred Conquest, a, a, a perennial candidate who has more name recognition now, thanks to Riley and, and, and myself on, on this podcast. Any other final thoughts on the governor's race? Republican side? Oh, let's do the, go ahead, do the Republican side. Michelle, make it interesting. I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so I followed Adam Laxalt around a bit the other day, and uh, he kicked off a 12-day, 28-stop get-out-the-vote tour that kind of went through all the rural counties. You know, I, I wouldn't say there were a whole lot of new voters there. It was a lot of, you know, party insiders, staff members at these events. Um, other candidates that kind of want to align themselves with Laxalt is what we saw. He's getting a lot of opposition, which I think presages, you know, a real tough general. He he goes to a coffee shop and, you know, 20 progressive activists come out with signs and, you know, yelling. Uh, you could hear it from inside <laughs> the coffee shop. I mean, these groups very coordinated uh, protesting him. Recap for us, Michelle, because this will play in the general. What are what are these? What are the activists on the other side of the aisle going after him on? What what do they think are the winning issues? I've since they've been trying to highlight. They don't want Laxalt to be able to pivot too much to be the moderate candidate, and so you know they're taking. A, you've got this site that the Dems are promoting, the AskLaxalt.com, where they're talking about you know things he wrote back in 2010 about don't ask don't tell so 
you know, trying to remind people, hey, he said this about the LGBT community, you know, remind people about some filings that he's made in, in favor of abortion uh, restrictions in other states. Because on the trail, you know, Laxalt sticks to the safer talking points. Um, he's not going to really talk that much about abortion. Well, he doesn't um, have to, right? Because he doesn't have a primary <laughs> challenger. So he's got that advantage over the Democratic uh, candidates and that he can choose what he wants to talk about. He di- he didn't end up even having to participate in a debate this entire campaign. Yeah. So he's really just talking about we don't want to become California and kind of leaving that to the imagination of voters. I think for a lot of people that means not, uh, you know, the, the higher taxes or the regulations. And of course, he's he's saying there's $50 million pledged against me from the Democrats in the general. So it's sort of this defensive posture. You know, you guys are going to get swept away and become a totally blue state unless you elect me. And that's, I think, a pretty potent selling point among the what people. What specific blue state might we become like? California. Uh, California. <laughs> of course, what she's, what she's, and listen, what was great about this piece, and people know who, who, who listen to me, and I, I guess that's probably an ever dwindling number, but people know that I love talking about my reporter's work, and, and, and you're really underselling uh, that piece, Michelle. You, you did three things in that piece, and, and just visiting with him in a few stops, that, that first of all, you captured what his main message is to the faithful, which is, listen, it's essentially a, a concession that the legislature is going to still be controlled by the Democrats, which is which is, is actually a fact. There's almost no way the Republicans... So I, you need me in the governor's mansion because I will be the bulwark uh, against it. You captured it. You captured what his appeal is and has been to the base. He talks their talk. He speaks like it. He says we can't become California. He talks about low taxes and regulation. And you also captured uh, how uh, carefully is not to go beyond those talking points, not to answer questions uh, and follow-up. So, so I urge people uh, to read that. But to Riley's point, and I think this is uh, very, very significant, even though he, he's trying to play the victim here with, oh, no, $50 million is going to be spent against me, uh, you know, which, to, to use uh, Elizabeth's analogy, is couch cushion money to Sheldon Adelson, who will spend it through a C4 or a C3 or something else. But Laxalt's still going to have money. Sisolak and Christian Killing or Christian will have nothing. You know, I mean, and I'm, I think I'm only being slightly hyperbolic in, in saying nothing. That is a huge advantage in a statewide race. Now, Sisolak is, is, is maybe the most prolific fundraiser this state has ever seen. I think he's probably had, you tallied these, I think, Riley, how many $10,000 contributions? I mean, there are dozens like upon 60 do- something. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge number. I mean, and, and, so, and, and so people say, oh, well, he's tapped them out. I don't think so. I mean, this is a guy, and when you're on a Clark County commission, you have jurisdiction over the most uh, wealthy uh, of, of donors, whether they own ga- gaming properties or, or their developers. So I think it's just the Democrats were at a huge disadvantage financially going in, in, into this. And, and so will the Democratic Governors Association and others that Laxalt is creating fear about these outside groups be able to combat whatever the Republicans do? It's going to be very interesting. But again, ads, indie TV. We should rethink this. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're, we're, we're a nonprofit that doesn't take ads. You got the re- listeners and readers tell us, I mean, we get feedback all the time that they love how fast the site is. There's no ads. There's no autoplay videos. There's, you know, there's no static. There's nothing in the way uh, between them and the, the content. So we're going to keep it that way as long as we possibly can. 
And now, podcast listeners, you have a glimpse into what our staff meetings are like. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about a couple other interesting primaries that are going on. And Riley, you've done some reporting, uh, actually, uh, in in CD3, which is the, the Jackie Rosen seat. She's running for the Senate. And and you, Megan Masterly has covered that race for us. She's not here today, but Riley, you've done some reporting in that. You've done some Danny Tarkanian pieces that uh, have made you an honorary member of the Tarkanian family. Uh, and so, talk a little bit about that race and what's been going yeah, on. Yeah, my invite to the Tarkanian family reunion must have gotten lost in the mail <laughs> this year again somehow. Uh, but yeah, I've sort of accidentally covered CD3 just because Danny Tarkanian, for listeners who don't know, um, has run for office six times. He's the son of um, Jerry Tarkanian, the legendary UNLV basketball coach. He's come very close but he's lost every race he's ever run. And he's running again. He ran in 2016 for the same seat, won the primary, uh, very contested primary against uh, state Senate leader Michael Roberson, former Assemblywoman Michelle Fiore. Came up very, very close against Jackie Rosen, but the district actually swung towards Trump. And so I think Danny has seen this and sort of decided to double down on support for the president. He's very, very pro-Trump. He was running for Senate sort of as a conservative check on Dean Howard, the incumbent. And then switched over on the very last day of filing after Trump tweeted out, it'd be great if uh, Danny Tarkanian jumped in the other race, which was a very orchestrated move, but it's worked out for Danny. Um, he was not raising enough to be competitive with Heller, who's an incumbent senator with sort of the power of Mitch McConnell and the whole, what's the term, vast right-wing conspiracy? Uh, <laughs> Do all, still use that? Uh, it's a bit dated, and I was like three when Hillary said it, but it's not important. Um, but he has enough where he's outraised basically every other candidate for this race. So as soon as Danny Danny got in. Victoria Seaman, who's a former assemblywoman, dropped out, endorsed Danny. Um, There's a former television reporter, Michelle Mortensen, and a state senator, Scott Hammond, who have both um, raised significantly over just sort of the normal, like, fringe candidates who file and then raise 20 bucks and hope to get lucky. But Danny has just uh, dominated in fundraising in that race, and he's sort of focusing on the general at this point. He's gone after Susie Lee, who's a big charity person uh, who ran in the state's fourth congressional district in 2016 and lost a primary to Reuben Kewin and now has moved to run in this, or she hasn't moved because you don't have to live in the district to run, but she's running in the third congressional district now and she really has not faced a lot of opposition, has, has just continued to fundraise and get ready for the very expensive um, 2018 general. And one thing about this district is like, it's one of, I think the most outside money goes into there at like at a rate, unlike most other districts, one of something like 40 competitive house races in the country. And I think it was like 15th, or maybe 10th, or maybe actually 1st. I, I don't remember. It's been a while. But Open Secrets did a list of how much outside money went into that district in 2016, and it was like near the top of all the races in the country. So I'm sure that will re- repeat again uh, this cycle. Yeah, it's it's a very uh, close district in, in, in partisan registration. It's always going to be the, the swing district. It was actually drawn for a Republican state senator back in the day named John Porter, who then won the district. The Republicans have held it, I think, six of eight times. Uh, uh, Dina Titus won a very, very close race as well when she won her race. And, and as you mentioned, Riley, Jackie Rosen barely beat Danny Tarkini. I think it was just 2,000 votes, so, something like that. Uh, but what's interesting about this, Elizabeth, uh, and move on to the other congressional district in a second, is, is and Riley kind of alludes to this, one of the reasons that this district is so important this time, uh, and it's going to be important every time because it's a swing district, is that the Democrats are making this big push to take over the House. And and in this state, there, there are actually two two districts that they have to play defense in. Two, two of the few districts in the entire country that the Republicans could take are in this state. Yeah, it is interesting. It's one of the things that makes Nevada 
uh, interesting and keeps us in play consistently, which we in the media, of course, love mm -hmm. because we almost always have marquee races to cover, uh, even in uh, non-presidential election years, just like this year. So, uh, so, so yes, um, this is a really interesting district. I encourage everyone to go on the site. We're going to be we've got state of play stories either already live or going to be live on these two big uh, congressional races. I encourage everyone to, to check the site on that. You know, I, I tend to think of this district as sort of almost lean Republican if all of the optics are right for Republicans this year. I don't know. It, it's iffy with Trump. I mean, his. Approval ratings were down, but then we've seen a little bit of a bounce. How many voters in CD3, you know, are, are in that mix of maybe starting to feel a little more positive about Trump? I think people are starting to become a little bit inoculated uh, to some of his daily nonsense on Twitter and are just kind of sitting back now and just looking at, well, what policies are we actually seeing? How's the country actually doing? How's the economy actually going? Well, you know what? The economy is going remarkably well despite Trump or because of Trump, depending on your point of view, I guess. Um, but people do tend to vote their pocketbooks a lot of the time and just think, you know, status quo is fine if things are fine. Do we really want to shake things up and make a big change? I don't know. Susie Lee's a relative unknown, so that's going to be an interesting general. We're, we're assuming Tarkanian's going to come out of this way, way, way ahead. He might actually have the best chance he's ever had of winning a, a general election in this d district. Uh, and, and I'm really – I wish I had a crystal ball because well, I'd love to be able to predict it right now. Or not. You never know. Uh, it's, uh, it, Riley mentioned this and in, 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 that the Trump won that district last time even though Jackie Rosen – uh, also won, and it was drawn for Republicans. It was pretty close in demographics and registration when they drew it, and then the Republicans thought they had an advantage because the growth would be all in Green Valley, and they figured they would have it, but it hasn't exactly turned out that way, but the orientation certainly uh, is Republican. All right, Elizabeth uh, gave a nice segue there, Michelle, uh, with her oblique nudge to you to get your CD4 preview <laughs> done. I heard it. I'm sure you did, too. Uh, but the, 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 this is uh, the, the, the district that is held now uh, by Ruben Kiwin, who is not running again because uh, of sexual harassment uh, allegations. And it's a, it's kind of a fascinating race. It's got four candidates who who, who, who have uh, uh, who we've decided essentially have some kind of shot, uh, even though Stephen Horsford, the former congressman, is the favorite, right? Yeah, we've actually got five, five. Uh, okay. candidates. Who, did that I, who, are... did I, who was I think? Oh, yes. My, my friend John Anzalone, the principal. How could I forget him? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that are raising, you know, a decent amount of money and are, you know, relatively well-spoken or have positions of prominence. You know, so we've got Regent Allison Stevens, who's a DNC committee woman. We've got uh, John Anslone, the high school principal. We've got uh, Pat Spearman, state senator. And Amy, Amy Valella, right. uh, Medicare for all activists. So, you know, what we're seeing is, is Horsford, you know, spending about five times as much as any of his individual other competitors. I feel that he's uh, trying to hedge off any possible upset in that primary. Uh, he's lost in an upset before, and uh, I feel like he's learned <laughs> from that mistake. He used not to hold to the district in case people don't remember, and he lost in the so-called blue wave, of, uh, the red wave, excuse me, of 2014 by a very small margin to Crescent Hardy, who then lost to Ruben Kiwin last mm -hmm. cycle. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he's spending lots of money 
I think it was about $236,000 in just like seven weeks, um, way more than anybody else is spending. He's got uh, really professional digital ads. He's got the culinary running ads for him at the parent company United Here. So he's getting a lot of professional <laughs> help as well as, as spending a ton of his own money. Got a lot of various consultants on the payroll. And and he's been focusing a lot on the healthcare issue. So, you know, you've got Amy Valella who jumped in way before this race was even thought to be in play when Ruben, you know, was was thought to be cruising to a re-election uh, before the sexual harassment allegations came to light. So I think she's sort of pulled people leftward in that primary, and that's kind of who Horsford has to answer to. So uh, we see him unveiling this prescription drug plan aimed at reducing the cost of prescription drugs. And the way he sells that is, you know, this is the number one driver of costs for, for Medicare, even though he's not supporting Medicare for all per se, he, he puts a caveat to that. He says, I want universal health care, but he doesn't want to commit to that specific bill that Amy wants, wants passed and, you know, wanted Ruben Kiwin to sign on to. So we're seeing him getting support, uh, in addition to the culinary, you know, the DCCC, He's got uh, Nancy Pelosi and her PAC and a lot of other presumably former colleagues of his. Democratic establishment is behind him. Democratic yeah. establishment. So, um, you know, we'll see if, if there's some sort of an upset there. But he's he's definitely not taking chances on that race. I was remiss. Uh, and we have a little over five minutes left. I want to talk about a couple of the races. But I was remiss. I probably shouldn't just talk about this. Like everybody knows where these places are. Congressional District 3 is 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 a very strange-shaped district. It, it has Green Valley, but it also has Democratic areas. Right, Riley? Yeah, it sort of covers the bottom, I guess, like the first bite of the pizza, if Nevada's a pizza. Um, so it covers all that rural area, and then it goes up to Green Valley and covers lots of Henderson, so sort of suburban parts of, of, of Las Vegas. But what kind of pizza are we, Riley, if we're a pizza? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I got nothing. Uh, <laughs> Just as long as you don't put fruit on it, we're fine. Uh, and and, and CD, CD4 uh, is, is another kind of strangely shaped. It's essentially what the urban core of North Las Vegas then extends up to six other counties. Is that right? You know, you go all the way up to Lyon County uh, up north, so, you know, CD2 is sort of the top half of, of Nevada, and there's just a bunch of rural Nevada in the middle of, uh, of NVO4, plus, you know, North Las Vegas and, and kind of the heart of regular Las Vegas, the part that's not um, Dina Titus's CD1. It's very strange because North Las Vegas has like 85% of the voters, I think, or something like that in, in, in the district, so it's very odd. Let's talk about a couple other really, in, and there's a ton of interesting races to talk about, but I want to talk about a couple that Riley and Michelle uh, have covered, and we have about five minutes left, so you got two and a half minutes, Riley. Time yourself accordingly. Let's let's talk first, and you've done two, what I really consider is very, I put this out on Twitter, and I believe it, really revealing interviews with, with Robert Lang and with Steve Wolfson, the, 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 the district attorney, uh, people, a lot of people still may not realize this. They're probably still going uh, to vote early, which uh, they shouldn't be doing, but they are. And they're probably realizing they can't vote in the district attorney's race because it's only a Democratic race because the legislature changed the law. But I don't think you could find two different men, could you, running for this office? They're very diametrically opposed in a lot of ways. I mean, they're similar in that they're both old white guys, but <laughs> they're from their viewpoint. Define old, Riley. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Rob Langford has just sort of um, embraced this progressive mantle. He told me that there was another person they wanted to run against, uh, Wilson, who backed out kind of on the last day. So he put his name forward. 
He's been around for a very long time. He's a long-time uh, criminal defense attorney. He had a, a stint in the DA's office like a, like a decade or two ago. And he is running the issues of like ending cash bail, you know, reducing the, 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 the prison pipeline, mass incarceration. He's just sort of like tried to tie himself to every progressive cause. And it's worked in the sense that there's a lot of outside groups that are coming up with a lot of money and a lot of TV ads to help him out. He hasn't raised that much money. He's raised like... $40,000 or something because he jumped in so late. And Wolfson's, what, 750000 something like that? He raised that in 2017, and then yeah. in 2018 he also has a ton of money helping him out as well. So he's running all of his own ads and all of his own big billboards, and uh, Langford is kind of hoping again for outside money to help him out. And then Wolfson has faced sort of a lot of criticism from Democrats. He is a Democrat. It's in a Democratic primary, but he's really gone after a couple of cases, like this case of Fred Steese, who was a guy um, that was accused of a murder in Las Vegas. And uh, this great story by ProPublica and Vanity Fair found that he actually wasn't even in Vegas at the time. He was in Idaho, and there was a lot of prosecutorial misconduct that happened in that case. But the DA's office has just continued to double down, and uh, Wolfson said he still believed he was guilty, even though he was pardoned by the state and by the governor. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if turnout is low enough, basically, that uh, the progressives can convince enough people to vote for um, Langford. It's hard because he did file so late, so it's not like he had this long buildup of support. He's tried to compare himself to Larry Krasner, who's this really crusading progressive district attorney in Philadelphia. But Krasner had like a much longer like sort of buildup and a lot more institutional support from national folks. These the supporters kind of came in in like the last two, three weeks to try and boost him. And it'll be interesting to see if it works. We'll yeah, find out on it's, Tuesday. It's tough to do that against a guy with all, with all of that money. All right, Michelle, a couple minutes uh, uh, left. Uh, as, as I said, the, the Democrats are likely to control both houses of the legislature. But there's, there's this fascinating Republican primary going on that you've done some reporting on between an incumbent, James Oscarson, and Dennis Hoff. Speaking of brothels, uh, the, the most maybe the most well-known brothel guy in, in Nevada. And the establishment Republicans are really worried about Hoff, are they not? Hoff, yeah, from what it sounds like, he's very viable and has, has a pretty good chance of, of taking that district. So, you know, they, they're concerned that he would be this uh, big disruptor if he were elected to the assembly. He's got some baggage. Um, you know, he, he admits that he sleeps with all the working girls at the uh, brothels. And uh, what some former employees have told me is that was not consensual. That was, they felt pressured. They had to do that. There was force. It was, they describe it as rape. So he's, he's never these, been convicted of anything. He's we never say, been convicted. No. Um, and they're the one case that had been kind of, you know, there's police reports about it and things like that, but they kind of determined there wasn't, uh, there, it was out of the statute of limitations. So it just, it, it's no longer being pursued. So, so today, you know, nothing, no conviction there, but that's sort of hanging over his head. But he does have this, uh, you know, charisma, this appeal. Um, he he really hounds Oscarson for the 2015 vote in favor of Governor Sandoval's tax package. Um, one of those key votes Sandoval needed to get that through. Oscarson in Nye County, deeply conservative. Uh, it was not well received, and he's been trying to hang on in the past two elections. Uh, he made it through last time. But this time, Dennis Hoff is challenging him as a Republican, and the last time he was as a Libertarian. Uh, so it's going to be probably decided in this upcoming primary. All right. Well, we're, we're out of time, Elizabeth. I'd let you have the last word, and you're going to get it anyhow in the next segment. But uh, Riley and Michelle, thanks for uh, 
taking time out of your very, very busy day. Uh, Michelle, get your story done or Elizabeth's going to be very <laughs> upset. Riley, oh, you have you have a story pending too, so get back to work. Thanks to both of you for coming. Elizabeth and I will be back in a minute. And we should also mention the <gasps> oh, Spanish. Oh, yes. Wait, wait a second. Michelle, we, usually I'm the one doing the shameless promos, but I almost didn't <laughs> give Michelle a chance to do one. Please t- talk about it. Well, you're going to have one last chance to um, hear from the governor candidates. We're having uh, at least four of them on our brand new Spanish language talk radio show, which starts Monday morning on 1460 AM ESPN Deportes. And what time? Uh, it's at 830 in the morning, goes till 10. Luce and I will be on the show and we're doing uh, live interviews with probably four of the five top candidates in the gubernatorial race. Uh, we could not be more excited about, about this. This is just, a, and what Luce has done with, uh, uh, and to some extent with your assistance, but she is just tireless in promoting the Spanish side of the Indian. And we just got one compliment on Twitter today, but I saw, saw from a very prominent uh, Hispanic national activist about what we've done, and they're thrilled about the radio show. We should also say that you, you, you and Luce also do a podcast. We should let people know on this podcast. Talk about that real quickly. We do have a podcast, Cafecito con Luce, and uh, based Basically, the radio show is going to be uh, the podcast. You'll still be able to get it on on your iTunes or what is it, Stitcher? I'm <laughs> yeah, Google Play. Uh, yeah, I've learned these things too. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you'll still be able to get it on the in podcast format, or if you want to listen to it live on Real Radio um, while you're driving to work uh, Monday mornings. All right. Good luck with that. Uh, uh, and I know you're doing your first your first one on Monday again, Michelle uh, and Riley. Thanks for coming. And we'll, Elizabeth and I will be back in a moment. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast in Nevada Independent. That's at NevadaIndependent.com. Elizabeth Thompson is still here, the managing editor and the force behind making sure that when you click on the Nevada Independent, it's there every day because Elizabeth holds it all together. The glue that holds the indie <laughs> oh, together. You could I put like that being the glue. You could put that on your business card. That's going to be my personal tagline from now on. Uh, okay. All right. That's good. All right. Uh, before we go on to talking about what, what the major story that, that, that our intern, Sonny Brown, wrote, broke this week about uh, this supposed investigation. Final thoughts on what we just discussed, the primary election. Uh, Have any thoughts? Well, so uh, gas, I mean, one thing that sort of got mentioned, but I (coughs) want to reiterate it because I I find it so amazing, is that the district attorney's race in Clark County is going to be decided on Tuesday because of, you know, the, you can explain it. I mean, you've been doing they changed the law. They institutional changed the law knowledge this. than I do about how this came about. They changed the law uh, uh, because, of course, the incumbents didn't like it working that way. If the other party doesn't put up a candidate, they don't want to have to go directly to the general election. They want their partisans. side. it's a huge, huge uh, advantage for incumbents. But it also seems ridiculous when you think about it. And I, I guarantee they're going to try to change it again. Well, I shouldn't guarantee it. It's Nevada. But then there will be a move uh, to change it because you have so many voters who are not going to have a say, may be able to vote for a very important office like district attorney. Also, well, well, the Republicans should have put up a candidate then if they want, but nonpartisans, you and I are both registered nonpartisans. We, you know, uh, we can't vote in that race now. We can't vote for the district attorney. Right. The nonpartisans and other parties are going to be close to 30 percent of the entire Nevada electorate uh, by November. So th- that law needs to be changed. Yeah. So we, what I mean, just to rephrase what you said and to put a little different spin on it, too, the 
you know, a very small number of people are going to be deciding who the next DA of the largest county in uh, Nevada is. And Wilson has a lot of strident supporters. He has a lot of strident critics. And I, for one, would like to, I would prefer to vote in the general. And I would prefer it to be a nonpartisan race, actually. I, I think Should be. I think it's kind of silly. Who? Yep. Th- this is one race where who cares? I don't care whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. We get them on the record, as Riley Snyder did with Wolfson. We look at where they stand on all these issues, and then we decide how do we want to run law enforcement in the in the county, bottom line. So, But I'm, I'm not going to get my wish anytime soon, I don't think. Any other thoughts before we move on to, to the uh, Laxalt story? Um, just that, that, you know, you've said many times correctly that the the governor primary on the Dem side is key. And the reason it's uh, so key is that whoever wins is presumably going to face off against Laxalt. And Laxalt really hasn't been vetted um, other than by the press uh, that much as a gubernatorial a candidate. Now, there is plenty of time for that yet to happen, but I wonder how much he'll get vetted even in the general because of the money issue uh, we talked about, that even if Sisolak, who is a great fundraiser, and I think there will be some outside money, we have to keep in mind that the DGA and other national groups, they have to decide which gubernatorial races they're going to make a priority. This red-blue fight across the country uh, over who sits in the governor's mansion has to be weighed against who controls the legislature and both the Republican groups and the Democrat groups look at this. Now, I think there's a chance that the Republicans are going to just be really all in because they do not want a Democrat being governor over a Democratic-controlled legislature, which is what we're looking at. So I actually think big money from the Republicans, but also big money from the Democrats because they're going to, you know, this is like golden for them if they can pull this off to get Sisolak in there. Uh, on the other hand, and I'll throw in this caveat, it kind of makes me laugh. I mean, Sisolak is a fairly conservative Democrat. A lot Not anymore, of, Elizabeth. Not uh, anymore. Uh-huh. Just, yeah, just for three more days. <laughs> right. uh, everyone across the state kind of jokes around about how he's Republican light uh, in, in many areas. Uh, and so how much contrast will be uh, drawn between those two candidates in the general? That's going to be fascinating. The money game is going to be fascinating. Uh, so I, I just think I, I'm delighted, as always, that we're, we're going to have so much to talk about uh, all the way through until November. It's by far the most important race in the state for governor, much more important and have more, much more long-term impact on Nevadans' lives, I think, than the U.S. Senate race. Absolutely. Uh, uh, just a couple quick things. The long game here, too, and the real significance of that governor's race, beyond what we just said, and that regular voters don't care about, is that uh, after the 2020 cycle, there will be reapportionment. That is another kind of a dog whistle, if you will, that Laxalt is sending to the Republicans around the country. We need to save this state from the Democratic takeover, et cetera. And so uh, reapportionment is in the back of these national parties' minds in Nevada with Democrats likely to have control of the legislature even after the 2020 election. Finally, I haven't even thought about this. And from a historical context, the only thing that's close to this that I uh, know about in recent Nevada history, and this is how recent it is, uh, Riley Snyder was not born, uh, and neither was a 
Michelle, when this occurred, I don't think. But in 1982, you had two veteran Democratic politicians, just as there were this time, running for the U.S. Senate. Howard Cannon, the incumbent, was challenged along by a Democratic congressman by the name of Jim Santini. They both spent each other into oblivion in the primary. Cannon eked out a victory. And then a totally unknown uh, guy who was a, a, a haberdasher in downtown Las Vegas by the name of Chick Hecht essentially hid wouldn't answer questions. Does it sound familiar uh, from for for the general election and 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 defeated a cannon in one of the biggest uh, upsets in the history of Nevada? I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but I know if uh, Dick Bryan is listening, he will uh, definitely appreciate it. One of my favorite things about you is that you you know these stories and you remember them and tell them so well. Yes, we should keep me around as long as I remember we them. Should. All right, uh, <laughs> real quickly before we go, let, let's talk about this story uh, that Sonny Brown, our our, our intern, uh, did a lot of reporting on about this sheriff in Story County that Adam Laxalt doesn't want to talk about. Wes Duncan was running for Adam Laxalt's uh, a position as AG, doesn't want to talk about him either. They both list him on their website as one of these 15 sheriffs to endorse him. Uh, but he's gotten into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of allegations against him. There's a lawsuit. Uh, he was the subject of a failed recall uh, uh, election. And Sonny's reporting indicates that there, may, if there's an investigation going on at all, which is highly questionable, and Joey Gilbert, a, a, a lawyer for these developers in Reno who don't like him, who tried to recall him uh, and want him out of office, is that there's no indication that after they've asked for this investigation, there's no activity. The central uh, uh, figure in this, Melanie Keener, has not been interviewed by the attorney general's uh, office. You, you have this tribal police chief who really doesn't like Antonaro, Gerald Antonaro is his name, saying that he was told by the chief investigator the statute of limitations uh, has has expired, which really is something to me about Elizabeth, and I want to get your thoughts on this. And this has been expressed to me by a few Democrats, and they're going after Laxalt almost every day on this, and of course they would, is that they thought that they'd have a couple of days of shots at Laxalt over this, but then he would say something like, I find this to be very troubling, you know, whatever kind of boilerplate kind of rhetoric politicians use, and that by, by doing what he has done, he has extended the life of the story and made it a real campaign issue, potentially. Well, yes, potentially it's become on the re Reno Gazette Journal followed our story this morning um, with a story on, on the issue. This is what I find amazing. that So Laxalt for weeks, possibly months, has been basically saying, I can't comment over much or much at all on this issue because of this supposed investigation. He's using that as his peg for why he can't talk about it. Now, that would be proper, I think, for the attorney general not to comment on an out ongoing investigation. So he's on solid ground there, except that we tried like hack to find out if there was any evidence anywhere, anywhere in the state uh, of this investigation. And we couldn't find a one wit of it. No one who has any ties to this case or this situation has been able to come up with any evidence, whether it's an email or a letter or a phone call or, you know, whatever, a, you know, carrier pigeon message, whatever it might be, um, that there's an actual investigation going on. And I think Laxall, at this point, his office has an obligation to either prove that there's an investigation going on or he should put up and answer these questions. Yeah, I think you're right on on, on all of that. Uh, I, I do think that, that they're going to try to produce some evidence, uh, whether real or, or exaggerated, that they actually have an investigation going on probably uh, uh, relatively soon now that the Gazette Journal has followed our, our piece and the AP will certainly pick up the, the story uh, as well. It's, it's a very, very difficult thing for him to run away from now. We reported 
uh, uh, that, that Wes Duncan, who, as I mentioned, the former deputy of Adam Laxalt, has been hanging his head on this as well, saying there's a criminal investigation. Does he really know there is one? He's not in the office anymore. He deleted a tweet that involved the Story County Sheriff but still doesn't want to say much. They have used this investigation as a prophylactic to try to say that they can't talk about this. Now, you have to ask yourself the question again. It's A lot of this stuff is not new. Uh, and yet they happily took Antonaro's endorsement in the first place. Why did they do that? There's a smiling picture of Laxalt uh, with, with, with the guy Well, because uh, as it's well. always great for, I mean, this always happens the, if there's a Republican candidate near the top of the ticket to get the endorsement of all the rural sheriffs is a big deal in the rural. And they don't pay much attention to who they are, right? Uh, well, apparently not. <laughs> right, right. Uh, in this case. Or what's probably more true and more fair is they just assume you're the sheriff, you know, and we would know if there were problems. There, I think there's a little bit of a timing issue here to be uh, fair to, to Laxall. I mean, we were the first organization that I know of that really wrote a big story about all these many different pending complaints and actual complaints that had uh, been tied to the sheriff. And that wasn't that long ago that we wrote that story. So, uh, you know, when Laxall initially accepted the endorsement Kosher, fine, great. But the tide has turned a bit now and things have changed a bit now. So I, I, I do think something needs to, to shift there with, with Laxalt's messaging at least. I, I agree. And I do think that there's going to be uh, uh, more on this for, for a while with media organizations trying to find out whether there's an investigation. And at some point, uh, Laxalt's going to have to prove that there has been an investigation. And then what are the fruits of that investigation are going to come out as well? All right, Elizabeth, thanks for coming as, as always. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing we want to uh, mention in our uh, endless self-promotional campaign. We're a nonprofit. It's a different kind of self-promotion. Uh, it, it is. We, it's you know, purer. We need you to support. It is. We <laughs> need you to support the indie, uh, but we also want to make it fun sometimes for you to do so. So um, we have a couple of very generous readers who have donated Hamilton tickets at the Smith Center to us, uh, which has enabled us to put a live auction uh, on So you can uh, go either to our Facebook page uh, or to our Twitter account, the NB Indie. Um, take a look at those. There's three sets of tickets, two set tickets for this coming Saturday, which by the time you hear this podcast, it'll probably be too late. But there's another set of two tickets for next week and then an, and a single ticket that's going to be up for auction uh, as well. This is an acclaimed, beloved musical. You went and saw it, and I understand you en enjoyed yourself it, it is It is immensely. worth every minute. It's, it, it's one of the few things that I've ever seen that met the hype. Great. These are gold circle orchestra seats. These are very, very good seats. Retail value close to, to 500 a piece on these tickets. We're hoping to raise at least that much if we can, but uh, please do go and bid if you're interested and if you haven't seen this great show. All right, Elizabeth, thanks. Thanks for that. Hopefully we're, we're jacking up the, the amounts uh, uh, with, with that shameless promo. Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. A reminder, our podcast interviews are also available on KUNV, that's the university's radio station, 8.30 p.m. on Thursdays. Uh, UNLV is our great partner, not just in this, but in special events and including our election night indie TV production, which will be right here at the Greenspun School. You should really click on the NevadaIndependent.com and indie TV starting at 6.30 on election night, we'll have all the numbers, analysis, we'll call races. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, 
Email us at ideas at com. Check out our site, too, if you haven't already, thenevadaindependent.com. Rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play or that thing Michelle apparently just discovered as did I called Stitcher. Yes, it exists. Uh, I want to thank Michelle and Riley uh, for coming on uh, the podcast as well as Elizabeth, as always. I also want to thank our wonderful hosts I referred to earlier, KUNV, on the campus of UNLV. And as always... Many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer. You get another chance here, Elizabeth, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. She is the smoothest, is she not? We need a countervailing weight to me. Who's me? John Ralston, the editor of Nevada Independent. Thanks for joining us in Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.